Hello and welcome to this episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast. We are coming to you a little bit late. I have just spent five days in the desert, and so my throat needed a little time to recover. Uh, Paul lives in the desert full time, but doesn't actually interact with the world, so maybe it's not the same. But anyway, me and Paul are here to talk to you about Andor, Episode 9. A lot of questions come up, a lot of great character work, and it just continues to be a great series for diving into questions so um we're gonna now have some ads i don't control them and i can't tell you how many ads there are going to be exactly in this episode but i can promise you no more than 12. welcome back i'm matthew your host i'm joined as always by paul my not host uh paul how we doing uh perpetually parched here in the desert but yep. <laughs> aside from that, doing pretty well. Yeah. Except I've been pondering. Uh, how many episodes are there in each season of Andor? Tw- no more than 12. Yeah. it's. I think it's never more than 12. But yeah. Yeah. I, I, I so. feel like we should cut that back. At, anyway. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it would not be is so very on brand for me to take one of the most like epic moments of an episode or a movie use it in a like fairly well thought out although sometimes not transition as like a reference to it but get the exact wording wrong i mean that is my brand 100 percent. that's fair also i would say that is uh very star wars yes Um, yes, given the number of times people have said luke i am your father (laughs) even though it doesn't say luke (laughs) play it again sam never said in the movie exactly so yeah, so what'd you think of uh, Andor 9? I felt like if this episode weren't absolutely brilliant, it would have been unwatchable. Mm-hmm. But it was. <laughs> and so it wasn't. Um, I mean, we had both mentioned that we did not want to see another whole episode where they were just in the prison. Mm-hmm. But it worked partially. It worked so well. Almost entirely. Exactly. Because they were not just in the prison, right? It's Mm -hmm. like this show just manages to have so much going on without much like going on in terms of like what happened? What did we actually see happen on screen? Like some people building some things and then someone having a stroke. That was like the action, you know, and the lights flickered. That was that was like what happened right in the episode. Mm -hmm. But what happened that we didn't see um, and what happened in terms of character development was like so much deeper. I mean, we were talking a while ago about how there's already this like incredible I I, some ways they call it an ensemble cast because you have so many characters who are so rich. All of the actors are nailing their parts so well. You know, because they take Andy Serkis, you know, this well-known actor, he's been Gollum, he's been a lot of great things, and almost kind of MCU style, it it appears at first like he's just going to have this cameo role of, like, where basically he's just kind of part of the scenery, in that he is used to establish not only how awful the prison is, but that as these systems are so good at doing, it takes one of the victims of the oppression and makes him into an oppressor. And makes him sort of like the, the primary face of how awful the prison is. I was like, okay, cool. That was a fun episode for him. He'll probably get killed in the, in the, in the escape. Cool. Now, we're nine episodes in, and he only had a two-episode character arc. But I think it's one of my favorite character arcs in Star Wars. 
Like, it was so well done and so subtly done, but just him getting to see, like, him coming to be aware of, like, yeah, it isn't as good, even though they've given you all this power, you're still a slave, you're still in prison, and just them them showing how he changes with just that one last line that gave me chills, it was like, man, the show is good. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's... There are a lot of characters that we only see a little bit of and Mm -hmm. can get somewhat of a sense of, but that are like there's more going on there. And like I I wouldn't say that my initial impression of um, Kino was that he I mean, it it was basically yours, but like, I wouldn't say plot furniture, you know, like, like I just, Mm -hmm. I just don't feel like that's a thing really in this show. And as close as the show comes to it. But yes, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I I just, um, but like, I felt like in the first episode, he was in episode eight. um, It was, you know, this was a character that we saw as. You know, a tool of the establishment while also a victim of the establishment, right? And exactly. And that in this episode, I don't think it's just that he changes, right? Because mm-hmm. I think I think there's two things that happen. One, in that last scene, it is revealed to us that he's always been motivated by number one, getting out of there. Right. Surviving right. and getting out of there. And number two, helping his dudes survive and get out of there. Right. That that is yeah. something that actually matters to him. That's not something that suddenly became important to him. That's always what he's right. wanted. Right. He's always actually cared on some level about all those people that he's right. being, you know, cruel to. But he's that sort of like drill sergeant who's hard on you because he doesn't want you to go off and get killed, right? I think that I I hadn't really put it in those words, but that is such a good point. And and in some ways, it's even more like it would be worse. In some ways, it'd be easier to write him as a character who, you know, I think you see this in a lot of prison movies or TV shows, who's kind of happy to be a tool of the establishment because he wants the power and the comfort and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. For him, it's not just that. Like, maybe there's some of that, but it's also, like you said, he wants to be, look, if I'm hard on you, at least then you never have to have everybody else be hard on you. And if I'm hard on you, I'm going to keep as few of us getting hit by the, by the you know, light up floors and stuff like that than, than any way else. Exactly. And he has, to this point, had this hope of getting out. And then once right. that hope is taken away, then it's like... Well, what am I even doing? You know, and right. and then he's just like never more than 12. You know, it's like he's just all of a sudden going from this like very clear mission of I'm going to stay alive. I'm going to keep my, you know, people alive and we're going to get out of here when we get out of here to. All right. Well, now it's on us to get out of here. Let's go. Yeah. And I, I think the point that you made at first actually comes in true even more there, because I think. Once you understand that, you can understand that part of his like refusal to talk to Andor about it, or Kreef, as he thinks mm-hmm. of him, Keef, is wanting to protect yeah. him. He's like, dude, don't we, 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 we can get out of here if we play by the rules. And I think in some ways it's yeah, it's the fact that like not only does he see his friend die, 
but he sees just how little they care for him that he's kind of like, yeah, why, why am I trying to help keep people safe if when they do get sick, this is what happens to them? You know, if our lives are so meaningless in here, we might as well try to escape. Like, I don't think – I think he's pretty certain that they're all going to die if they try to escape. Like, I don't think he's got some huge hope. But, yeah, I think he's just like, why in the world am I trying to protect Andor and keep him in this place? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that he's pretty certain that they're all going to die, but I think he realistically understands that the, <laughs> the probability is high for each of them to die, right? right. I mean, it's like there's there's not a ton of hope of escape. But at the same time, I think he he does – he is sort of like, well, yeah, maybe Andor is right. You know, they don't care right. at all. <laughs> they're they're not going to pay mm-hmm. enough attention, you know, to, to actually – stop us because they 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 have gotten um you know overconfident right like their their whole like recycling prisoners and everything like um the i mean i think that doctor was an interesting character too like because mm-hmm. yeah you know um kino and and andor or keith were both like his name is olaf you know and he's like the patient he's like his name is olaf and he's like he won't mm-hmm engage with him as a person because he's he's just like the best i can do is either get him back on his feet or you know put him down basically right and um and he's like i don't want to know his name because like (laughs) i i have to do this every day right i'm just constantly yeah um either killing people who are either dying or almost dying um or or like no no longer of service to the empire um or you know just getting people back on their feet so that they can you know serve the empire and so i think he's just like trying to just like stay kind of shut down just like stay in his lane and not make any not connect emotionally on too much of a level because i think he does care also you know these are all yeah i think very much so like there's such a difference, and again, it's just a few words, but between like, oh, who cares what the guy's name is versus I don't want to know. Yeah. Because, again, in that situation, often you think the doctor is like, whatever, you're all dead people. I don't care. I'll just do what I can. But but he clearly does. And even at the end, when like uh, Cassian and Kino are trying to get him to like, you know, do something else, what he basically – like what he wants is is basically mercy for Olaf. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, look – I can like stretch him out for another like 10 hours of suffering yeah. or I can just kind of do a mercy, you know, euthanasia right here, which is exactly I think probably was the right thing to do. And it's yeah, that guy was on screen for maybe like five minutes. And I feel like I know so much about him and like what he wh- where he's coming from and what he's doing. And just the subtle detail of making it so clear that he's a prisoner. Yeah. But that the different color stripe like marks him as different. And so he can't really bond with everyone else um, and sets it up as though like Cassian and Kino are, are antagonists to him and vice versa instead of them all being able to say the system is terrible. Like oh, it's just so well done. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> I feel like um, that is contrasted mm-hmm. by the <laughs> – um, the scene with with Bix in the beginning, and then again mm-hmm. just like a few seconds later, right? They just like show her right for a few seconds just to kind of remind you, yeah, she's she's still there, you know, she's still mm-hmm. suffering. Um, like this is this, you know, like this is the Empire, right? And this is it, it, right. 
it's funny how in the beginning, like, I think, I think a lot of people were saying like, oh, well, you know, the Empire hasn't really done anything that bad, you know, and rebels are, are pointing a gun at a kid's head, you know, um, like they're the same. Like, OK, no. Uh, yeah. But like this is, you know, this is what the Empire has been doing this whole time just to, to different mm-hmm. extents, right, to one extent or another. Um, and, you know, the, the difference between kind of it feels this prison feels like very clinical. Right. I think it's supposed mm-hmm. to where it's like they're like, look, you know, we're not here to, to torture you. We're just here to make you work. And then maybe mm-hmm. we'll kill you if, if it suits us. But um, it feels like there's not really um i don't know like malice like there's evil Mm -hmm. but not necessarily malice yeah whereas when um you know the actual overt torturing of of bix it felt like i mean especially that doctor right um but it felt like there was this more this malice you know that these are these Mm-hmm. Um, more like true believers, and the the fact that what they're using as a means of torture is the evidence of their genocide. Yeah. You know, so there's so much I want to talk about there. I I want to get into the torture itself, but I uh, like I want to just start for to back up a bit and just talk about it in terms of how they made the movie part, like the movie making part of it. Yes, it's TV, but yeah, yeah, how, filmmaking. We're, we're talking about this. Yeah. You and I have talked a number of times, I think at least once or twice on air, definitely a lot off air, about how, <clears throat> you know, we don't really love torture porn. Yeah. And that, like, a great example is Theon in Game of mm-hmm. Thrones and how in the book a lot of it's off screen, but in the mo- in the TV show they really, like, showed you, like, every horrible thing that happens to him. And I think that's, to me, that's like, yes, it is showing, not telling, but it's it's basically just like we're going to put it right in front of you make you super uncomfortable some people love that some people find it very effective i find it 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 doesn't have that effect especially when compared to something like what they do to bix because they tell her in excruciating detail just what they're going to do to her enough to give us a very visceral sense of how awful it's going to be and they put the headphones on her and i braced myself ready to hear something truly horrible and then, and we did, but we don't hear the torture. We just watch Bix's face as she tries to resist. By the way, like one more person who gets some Emmy nominations. Uh, the whole cast is just amazing. But like we watch her face and we hear her scream, but we never actually experience the torture that she's experiencing. And I feel that it was just so much more effective. And it was like, it didn't feel exploitative or manipulative. It just felt like we want you to be with this character and see the horrors that she's undergoing. Yeah. um, Like, it was also very brief, honestly. You know, it wasn't... um, It wasn't an extended scene. You know, the the extended part was the part before the, the actual torture, right? Um, right. was kind of like explaining what was going on. And, you know, I, I do think sometimes the show don't tell is taken too far, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I do think that a lot of times uh, the imagination can come up with something worse than whatever you can put in front of someone's eyes. 
you know? Right. And I mean, it's sort of like an alien. Like, you don't see the alien very much in Alien, but it's a way yeah. scarier movie than Aliens, right? Where you see a bunch of aliens. Um, yep. And mm-hmm. so, you know, not showing us or not <laughs> showing our ears, right? Um, yeah. The, the exact thing, but giving us the the feeling of of how she feels you know and the fact that they've established her um as they have cassian and as they have you know a lot of characters as this she's this very tough person you know like Mm -hmm. she's a badass and like nonetheless this breaks her you know and um in the last episode one of the things that i i didn't mention that i in retrospect wanted to um, was that that was the first time that we saw like and or like shook, you know, and right. it, it was after getting literally shocked twice, I think, and and just seeing how horrible this place was and how he was supposed to be there for six years, you know, and mm-hmm. and that kind of reaction from a character means so much more when you've already shown them to be, you know, this like very tough person. Um, it, mm-hmm. it just, it, it plays different, you know, not that every character like has to be very tough and that's the only way that, you know, you can show something, um, is like right. really, really, um, really traumatic. Right. But it, I think it, it helps. Um, yeah. Like the, the knowing what she has gone through and that it has that effect on her, I think is so much more powerful than any actual hearing. Right. It. Exactly. And, and just the, like. The delight that you're right, the doctor, but also Dedra, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and and they play it, I think, intentionally in a way to make you uncomfortable because like, you know, Dedra saying things like, you know, the most dangerous thing you can do is bore me. Right. Like they're well aware that there's a portion of the audience that's going to be like, oh, oh, no, mistress, I don't want to bore you. Like <sighs> they're going to enjoy that in a level. And and I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. But that's kind of the thing. Like they are playing on some of the tropes of like look how sexy evil can be while also being like incredibly terrifying and being like no this is not someone you should be like romanticizing as a girl boss Cyril Um, (laughs) yes we're gonna get to that in a second but like let me just go off on that on the term girl boss for her because that's that's a term that like it came up in the early 2010s and like a lot of the the, uh, creators on TikTok who I follow especially a lot of awesome women have been talking a lot about this in regard to Dedra that like at first the term was like really widely adopted and used and loved it's like yeah like woman power like you know being able to claim yourself and like lean in the lean forward thing and like not letting men you know talk over you and stuff all good things but then a lot of it became really about like, yes, here's the way that you as a woman who is too often shut out of patriarchal oppressive structures in government and corporations and the like can rise to the top and join the boardroom and be just as patriarchal and toxic and oppressive as all the boys. Yeah. Um, and like I think that they're so intentional that with Dedra that like. Yeah, seeing a woman in a male-dominated field makes me like, you go, girl. Like, I want you to succeed. <laughs> and now I'm seeing her succeeding, and I'm like, oh, my God, no. <laughs> like, wait, nobody should you know? succeed at this. Nobody should succeed at this. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's just like, oh. It's, I, I, I don't just want the whole episode to be like, wow, this show is so good. But I, it was just, it's again, it's taking these tropes and adding so much more nuance yeah. to them. Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, on 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 some level, it's kind of subverting the tropes, right? By kind of right. taking them and 
not playing them exactly the the way that they're usually played, right? And right. Um, yeah, I think you know it didn't even occur to me that some people might have thought that scene was like uh, you know stimulating in that manner. But of course, right? Of course, people, you know. I, I I mean I don't know if this was intentional, but I think so, the writer who wrote that one line, I will guarantee, has seen Willow say. Bored huh. now. I was thinking that one in a way that just for me. drove so many people crazy. But with Willow, it's fun and playful because she's so over the top, and it's like, yeah, that's sexy and awesome, and also terrifying. But hey, it's fun to be terrified sometimes. And here, it's just like, oh god, no, this is just truly horrible. Yeah, the the writer of these um these three episodes, this arc is Bo Willimon, mm-hmm. who um was mm-hmm. the the. I guess creator of the the U.S. version of House of Cards. Oh, that's really which cool. I think has you know some of those dynamics, right? Power and and oh you yeah, know, sexuality and Kevin the, Spacey is very much like sexy, evil right? Exactly, and so and then and then his wife even more so, I think. Mm, the okay, end. yeah, um, yeah. I only really watched the the first season, but um, I know that this writer mm-hmm. wrote several of those episodes. Um, which the first season of that, I just. I just went through so fast. I was like, yeah. just like couldn't stop watching. Um, and yeah, so I, I think the, yes, the, the writing definitely like, I think there's an awareness of, of all of these things. Right. But like, yeah. Also like, I don't know. I feel like a certain level of restraint in terms of like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel to me like it's being played for that. Right. Like, Yes. It feels to me like that is an element of the scene, but that the scene is just no. This is this is a useful torture method to them, right? And mm-hmm. um, and Dedra is basically like she just wants results. It's like that really yeah. seems to be all she cares about, right? Um, for whatever reason, whether it's for power and and you know control and glory or whatever or whether it's because she really is a true believer of the empire like i don't think that much is clear yet you know but i don't doubt that there is a that there's like an answer to some extent i mean maybe we won't know right Mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of characters where um we don't know the whole story you know and that that's fine. Like, you don't always know yeah. everything about everybody, right? I mean, you never know everything about anybody, <laughs> right? Uh, like, you probably don't even remember everything about yourself, right? Like, this is, this is mm-hmm. how, how minds work. But, like, I, I feel like there's, there's just this really nice blend of kind of a lot of depth that we get shown, but then also mm-hmm. some things that remain below the surface that, like... Um, uh, like Kino's character may get revealed in another episode or may not. Yeah. <clears throat> and I don't need it. Yeah. Like, I don't want the Kino backstory, mm-hmm. you know, show, you know? Yeah. Like, and I think you're so right, especially about Dedra, because like, kind of going back to what I was saying, like, often I think when that plays out, like, part of the point is that the Dedra character is actively sadistic, that she's enjoying the pain she is causing others and the fear she's causing others. And then there's so many tropes that go mm-hmm. along with that. Like, I've seen that kind of behavior where a part of the audio track is like the very audio click of her high heels. Right, you know, right. She's walking yeah. around or that kind of thing. 
and and kind of an evil laugh maybe sometimes. She is. I don't believe Dedra is a sadist. Right. Yeah. I believe that she has learned that one of the tools that should be in your toolbox to extract information from a particular kind of person is sadism. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes it's about torturing their body and sometimes it's about torturing their mind. And she's like, okay, cool. I will take the sadism tool out of the box and use it, which I think is actually probably a lot more common than, again, the like, mwahaha, evil laughter, like, you know, true. Like, yeah, a lot of people enjoy sadism in their own terms, like, you know, for adult reasons in consensual situations. But that's the whole point. That's what I'm talking about at all. Like the actual person who's like, mwahaha, I'm going to laugh easily as I torture you. I don't think that happens anywhere near as much as we would see as like from Bond villains, right. you know, like yeah. she feels like a much more reasonable one who is like, she, yeah, she's so dedicated to the empire. And, and as part of that, the idea of like, oh, I'm torturing another fellow human being or another living soul. It can be either A, it's for the greater good of the empire, so it's justified, or B, these people refuse the goodness. They're standing in the way of the greater goodness of the empire, so therefore they've lost all right to be treated humanely. But either way, it is so effective. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like it just feels like it's irrelevant to her, you know, like these people suffering. And the thing that um, was actually even more um on that uh on that note was so before they tortured Bix they tortured Pac I think is his name um right and then the the guy who like wanted um to have that particular title or whatever in I think it was was it episode Four or you know the basically the guy who came and is in charge of the imperial presence on Ferrix now um, I think it's that guy oh, yeah. who's like, oh, I would like to hang him. And Dedra's just like, yeah, sure, whatever. I don't care. Like, right. that's how the Empire operates, you know, and that's how yeah. just irrelevant the lives of individual people are to them. And, you know, they're they're suffering or they're, you know, murdering them like they just don't care. And it's it's like it's right. just transactional. It's like, oh, well, I just you know, we want to remind people who's in charge. And. This is like, I mean, I think to some extent that's a little different than what we usually have in our world, Mm -hmm. right? But I think to some extent that's how a lot of people justify, you know, state-sanctioned murder or capital punishment, right? right? Is, oh, well, the idea is that this will be a deterrence to people and will stop people from... Um, you know, committing murder or in this case, letting someone use a radio, you know. Um, and like I've mentioned this before, but I think this is a chance to go into even more detail about it. And spoilers for the novel Lost, uh, Lost Star uh, that um, is about this. But in that novel, which I talked about before, you know, it's about uh, uh, a young woman and man who grow up on the same planet. They both and one of them winds up joining the rebellion. One of them winds up joining the empire. And, and we meet a lot of, like, young idealist imperials who all, like, their childhood was the chaos and horror of the Clone Wars. Right. And so for them, like, the Empire comes and, like, people aren't robbing them all the time. People aren't killing each other all the time. The Empire has made things safe. It made it possible to, you know, have an education and to go see the galaxy instead of just hiding in the caves. They have this dedication to the Empire. 
And one of the most powerful scenes in the book is them dealing with the the Death Star's destruction of Alderaan. Mm. And some of them can't take it and wind up trying to leave or, you know, things happen there. But for some of them, it's exactly that. It's the, the it's just the math of it, of they look at the fact that like billions of lives were lost during the Clone Wars and probably even you know, billions more suffered in horrible ways. And I think they established that like the, the population of Alderaan is maybe like one billion or so. It's smaller than Earth and it's, it's smaller than the, because that's the idea is that even though those billion people or, you know, 800 million people, whatever it is, had to die, their death will finally convince people to stop fighting the Empire so we don't have another set of Clone Wars, so we don't have all this chaos and awfulness. And you're, you, I'm reading this and one part of you is horrified that any person, any sentient being could ever think like this. But on the other hand, it's a perfect illustration of, you know, the lobster in the pot and you turn the water on higher and higher. It never notices like how how hot how worse it's getting. We've seen that happen from like the one person who's executed to the group of people being executed to the prisoners being tortured, as we're seeing here, all the way up to I can justify to myself the destruction of an entire planet full of people because I think it'll save even more people in the long run. Yeah, and I mean, we we get that in our world too, right? Depressingly so. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, here they just they just murdered like about three hundred fifty people, right? On because they right. sent one, they recycled one prisoner to the wrong place, and then they were like, "Oh yeah, I, I didn't get released. I was supposed to get released." And then they're like, "Oh well, we got to kill all of them." And like, yep, you know, it, the the ease with which people can, um justify things in terms of Mm -hmm. um i mean to me there's there is like a difference between using state power to do that and you know um doing that in within the context of of a rebellion um i know Mm -hmm. not everybody necessarily sees it that way but um that that's to me one of the reasons that i feel like using state power to, to kill someone right in um in what you know what i call murder because it's not it's not in an act of like, okay, that, you know, there, like, there are instances where police will shoot someone and it's like, well, that person was literally had a weapon and was attempting to kill someone else with it, you know? And like, right. That is the sort of thing where it's like, okay, that's definitely different than all the other instances of, of police shooting people or of, you know, killing someone in custody. It's like once, and and I'm not even saying that I I necessarily think the first thing is okay. Right. I'm just saying that it's, it's different in ways. Right. And yeah, I mean, I I think you can say in the first case that like, in some cases, maybe if the police had better de-escalation training, there that there would have been another way to solve it. But like, you know, an imminent threat to other people's lives is, of if any time I'm going to justify deadly force, that's 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 closer to to where I that's, can justify it. That, yeah, I'm very much. Yeah, that's the that. situation where I'm open to having a conversation about what's the best way to handle this situation. You know, one person is actively mm-hmm. um, engaged in violence against another person. What's the third person like? What what's your line? Right? Like, how do you how do you handle that right. situation? Um, and that's just categorically different to me than. Um, 
you know, killing someone who's in custody, right? Killing someone who is not right. presently a threat to anybody. Um, and so mm. I think when you can, once you say, okay, I'm okay this, with the state doing this once for this one person, like, what about five people? What about 350 people? What about 800 million people? Right. You know, it just, then it's just like, well, it's just a number, right? It's the same thing, but it's it's just a number. And it, it it's just a number. And the other side of it is the, well, if this number is to, is no longer justified, does that mean maybe the smaller number was also not justified? Like it, it, it opens right. you up to having to wonder, have I been doing all these horrible things all along? You know, it, it's it's one of the worst kinds of feeling pot committed <laughs> yeah. of like, you know, I started down this road. I can't ever go back. Right. Exactly. And poker theory would tell us there is no point in a hand where you absolutely can't fold anything. But um, that's a whole different right. <laughs> thing. But people but that's how people yeah. think. Right. People, I think, have this right. mentality of like, well, once I've taken, you know, it is too late for me, <laughs> you know, like once I've taken right. a certain number of steps in a certain direction, there's no turning back. There's no. And I mean, obviously, there's circumstances where that may be true. Right. Um, but right. I think people often think more circumstances fit those criteria than actually do. Exactly. I think it's really well said. Um, there's so much with all of this that we can get into. I want to make sure we, we get to cover a bunch of things. So do you mind if I get into the Cyril, Cyril and Dedra yeah, at all? Yeah. Because I, I have some thoughts. Yeah. Why don't, why don't you uh, come with that? Because I know Cyril's sort of been your... Uh... <laughs> so yeah. this is going to sound like a weird tangent, but I promise it's going to get to a place. And even if you don't care about sports ball, this will make sense, <laughs> I hope. Matthew Barry, who is a, a reporter and a columnist and one of the people who really kind of created the, the genre of media about fantasy football and fantasy sports. He, he, he does a column most years to start out the fantasy football like season of like getting ready to play. And for a while, he's used this gimmick where he will say as a way to kind of like show you how statistics can be taken out of context or a story can be taken out of context and that there's almost always more nuance, he'll say, let's take player A and here are player A's stats. And look, if you look at these stats, it is so clear that player A should be one of the first people you draft. But let's look at player B because player B has all of these stats. And if you look at this and all these indicators and all these things happening, it should be really clear player B is someone you never want on your team. By the way, player A and player B are the same person. Today, I watched a TV show that said, here is a character and you're going to watch on screen as an adult man is emotionally and verbally abused by his parent in a way that is going to make you so aware that he has been abused by this parent since he was a little child and that this grown man who wanted to stop people being killed and find out what had happened has didn't, you know, faced nothing but corruption and people who didn't believe in him and all of these terrible things. And now we're watching him again be abused by his parent in a way that is making him feel like a child again. And like, as he's doing it, he's eating a, a what looks like a childhood cereal and has this very kind of like childlike pose of, of hiding almost, pulling him into himself. And I'm so sympathetic to that person. And you're also going to show me a character who is so fanatically devoted to his cause and the cause of the empire 
that he refuses to listen to anybody who is trying to tell him to stop doing what he's doing. He keeps pushing boundaries. He keeps pushing lines. And eventually, when there's one woman who doesn't show any affection or interest in him, but simply is willing to acknowledge that she's concerned about the same things he's concerned about. And he becomes so fixated on her that he declares his love for her and that he can only live, that she's the only reason he can think of living. And like any stalker, because he's a straight up stalker, when she rejects him, he's angry. He physically grabs her. He tries to, like, you know, physically stop her. And then tell me it's the same character. Like... Mind utterly blown. And I don't just want to say like great writing, although again, it utterly is. And again, that actor is so good because yes, I was rooting for Cyril to some extent. I had a lot of sympathy for him. I knew he was part of some bad things, but I, and we had that great conversation with Danielle from written in the star Wars where she was saying that like, yes, all that's true, but he's also very much showing you the path towards like right wing radicalization and incels and all that. And that's exactly what they showed us. And the fact that they did that while giving us both of those sides of him, the incredibly sympathetic man-child who's been so abused by his mother, and the incel stalker who's doing this horrible thing to another woman who, as we've said, is a, is, is using sadism to torture people for the empire. Like, oh, I, I, I just, putting all that out there, is, it was just so mind-blowing and so well mm. done. Yeah, I agree. Um, I... I mean, I feel like all those things go together rather smoothly, you know? Yeah. It, it is. I, so, so this this fantasy football thing, these are two different sets of stats, right? It's not like one season and another, yeah. but it's like, oh, these are uh, certain of their stats, and then these are other stats, and some of them show are like very good indicators of, of ability, and some of them are, are less good, right? And they just happen to kind of go right. together. Right, and, and it's done in a way where you don't really realize that none of them contradict each other. Right. But it's things like, you know, like, let me tell you about a quarterback who has completed 65% of his passes. And then they'll say, like, but let me instead tell you about a quarterback who hasn't thrown a pass over 20 yards in, you know, two years right. or whatever. Like, it, it, it's, yeah. So here, Cyril you're right. they, hasn't thrown a successful mm-hmm. pass, but he did make a pass, and yeah, <laughs> um, slash you know, fairly hardcore stalking, um, which I think it's interesting what Dedra's response to that was. Like mm-hmm. she didn't like have him arrested. She could, you know, right? Um, she definitely, I think. Um, this scene, it didn't retcon, but it it assaged my uh, my issues with the the previous week's episode. Mm. You know, it's yep. the sort of thing where um, I felt like it didn't quite feel right that um, you know that she was just like go away, go away, go away. Like it felt like maybe she could think that she could get some more use out of him, but I think. This scene made it clear that I think, number one, she sees him as just being beneath her, right? Like, as basically just being this screw-up who, yes, maybe has intentions that are aligned with hers, right? But, you know, he's like, I'm very good at whatever. Like, I found him. And it's like, sure, you found him. But, like, then you did, you know, blow everything up. Um, And... So I, I think 
it makes sense that she really did look down on him. And then also that maybe she did get some of like this vibe, you know, like, like she is cold and calculating. He's a fanatic. And those are fundamentally different. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so like, maybe they're not actually as aligned, like they're aligned in motive of like, well, we want the empire to succeed, but maybe, Maybe their actual like their why for why they want the their empire to succeed is is different, and um, I think the same way that like everyone has their own revolution, like maybe everybody has their own empire, right? I mean, there's a lot of yeah. overlapping reasons, but like some people are like, yeah, I grew up in the Clone Wars, and you know uh, things weren't so good, and then you know now it's the empire, and maybe mm-hmm. things will be better now, um, and then other yeah. people are just like, no, I just. I'm just a hardcore authoritarian. Like, that's just how I see things. And then, yeah, you know, um, and then Cyril seems to be very enamored with the concept of power. Right. Um, and and he on some level, I think I think wants to be a, you know, a sycophant. Right. And yeah. and <laughs> that seems to fit well with Dedra, who doesn't want to be a sycophant. Right. She, mm-hmm. she um she wants to be the one in control um but again like right. we don't know all of her motives either and Cyril I think we didn't have as clear an idea of kind yeah. of who he was until this episode right it was very re- revealing but I think up until this point they they did a good job of letting us wonder so it didn't feel like mm-hmm. none of this felt contradictory it felt surprising to me I was like oh okay that's where we're going with that. I was like, okay, I could, I could see that, you know, like it, it didn't well, feel wrong. In some ways, I feel like you actually captured the heart of what I was trying to say with the fantasy football thing even better than I did, which when you said that the whole point is that they fit together smoothly, because mm. that's kind of Matthew Berry's point often is like, actually, like that we think that if you have all these good statistics, then you must not have all these bad ones. But the truth is most pe- most players have like a lot of good and a lot mm-hmm. of bad. And and with Cyril, I don't think it's good as bad as much as I think it is this, like we tend to think like, oh, if you're a monster, then like you're a total monster. But if you've got a sympathetic backstory, then well, maybe what you're doing is not so bad and and i think cyril is just this perfect illustration of you can feel and and maybe others don't feel sympathy for him and i think that's legit too you know maybe people are like why didn't you see this episodes ago and and i think we always did i think we've been been honest about like some of the horrible things he's been doing like it's not like we're like rooting for him by any means but i think it was definitely a like yeah this is this is the thing is that you can have both sides of these stories, you know, and that they're both there. It's not that it's like you you told me this story of like somewhat two totally different characters. It's no, they are the same person and that there are direct links between what his mother and others have put him through and the way he's now acting towards towards Dedra. And they explain it and they help to make don't help. They don't not the only reason to explain it, but and, and you can almost make a comparison to Anakin in the same way of like. Anakin had all these terrible things done to him as a kid and he never had the outlets he needed. It helps to explain the horrible things Anakin did. It does not justify them in any way. And I don't I think part of the power of that also is that like Dedra has been dealing with all these like you know sexist men in positions higher than her. Now, this person who's like, like part of what I think is so effective about that scene is, yeah, she does think he's beneath her. She does think he's a nothing. 
but he's still able to physically intimidate her at least a little bit. Like I think she, I don't think she's like a wilting flower in the scene by any means, but I think there's definitely a moment of like shock and like upsetness from her when he grabs her. And it was just, yeah, I just, I think we need stories like this that can show you that one person can carry all of this and that you can have all these different, you can be very sympathetic and very angry for what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, people are people and reality is complicated, right? And yeah, everybody has a backstory, you know? And I mean, it... You know, th- what you were what you were talking about reminds me of like Kingpin in the Daredevil series, you know, where uh, it's exactly what I was thinking yeah, of. Like yeah. he has a backstory. It's a compelling backstory. It's a tragic backstory. Right. He he was a victim mm-hmm. in his own backstory. And then and then you could say he was a hero. Right. But also yeah. that the moment he became a hero was also the moment he became a villain, you know, and yeah. um. I think just because, like, just because we understand who he is and how he became who he is doesn't mean we have to, you know, offer forgiveness for what harm he's caused, right? Um, It just means we have to understand. And, And I think understanding doesn't always mean, like, not holding someone accountable for their actions, Right. It just it just means like having an accurate view of the world. Um, I I think that some of the like I don't feel like there's necessarily been like overt sexism in the Mm -hmm. treatment of Dedra. I think what they've used is they've leveraged the the fact that similar situations like a similar dynamic generally is predicated on sexism and misogyny. Mm-hmm. And he and done that in order to elicit sympathy from the audience, right? Yeah. And make the character feel relatable um, without necessarily sexism or misogyny being the basis of, um, you know, uh, Blevin being so dismissive of her and, you know, the sort yeah. of like fighting to have people actually listen to her when when she has great ideas for for doing horrible things um you know i i think the word overt is what's really key there because you're right it hasn't been overt in the slightest and i don't think i don't think any of the men she's dealing with have ever consciously been like what's a woman doing in isb she doesn't have we we're not going to take her seriously but the fact that she is the only woman or at least maybe there's another one but like one of the only women in a group of mostly Mm -hmm. men and they're not taking like i think i think the sexism is definitely there because like they definitely they're doing things to have us in the audience project it there, but I think part of the reason we project it there is because it, you know unless you're someone who just doesn't want to believe this kind of stuff, we know that it pretty much it, that it always there to some extent or another, especially in the kind of patriarchal kind of power structures that are being set up where it is mostly men and things like that. Like so, I think I'm like mostly in agreement with you, but I do think it's that it's. I don't think it's that, like, no, everyone here is perfectly gender aware and they just have other reasons for her. I think some level of the fact that she's a woman is a part of it for the characters as well as for the audience. But I think it's it's much more subtle than we would ever see it. And I think it's true on behalf of the characters. Like, like if Blevin were to say, like, well, but I never really trusted you for a woman, I'd be like, no, that's that's not the character you've shown us. That doesn't feel right. Yeah, um, I'm not... I'm not fully convinced, but uh, I think that's certainly that's at least a, a reasonable um, interpretation. I the m- my kind of counterpoint would be like I feel like 
um, I think his name's Legret, right? The the supervisor mm-hmm. is like extremely dismissive towards several of the men as well. Um, and right. to me, it feels like that's just like the dynamic. But it it w- this episode we did get some of the first real overt sexism that we've had right. in um in the sh- like super overt you know um with yeah. like when vel shows up and turns out to be mon mothma's cousin and which is such another good development we need to get into yeah, yeah. and like she gives um well let, let's let's circle back to that um because I, I just I, I think we um, the I think the Cyril and Dedra sort of develop. Yeah, there's a couple more things. To yeah, say yeah, then. it deserves a little bit more um, uh, discussion. I I feel like what they've done is they've really made these characters feel like real people. They've given us reasons to relate to them or sympathize for them. You know, um, in terms of like mm-hmm. the, whether. Whether the way Dedra's been um, treated in the beginning uh, is because she's a woman or whatever other reason, uh, it regardless, it's relatable, right? It's it's right. like this is a negative experience a lot of people have. This is a way that people, um, especially women, um, and I, I, imagine, I imagine any non you know cis male people, right, um, right. face this kind of you know oppression right and that and yet can be part of of the oppressing system and cyril similarly has um had a you know (laughs) it it seems very much not a a happy childhood and has um Mm -hmm. you know i I did feel in the first time interaction between him and his mom um Mm -hmm. i it felt a little more two-sided right now it does more feel like, yeah, she's she's his abusive parent, you know, <laughs> like yeah. um, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that their relationship couldn't have been different after he moved out. Um, but like, I, I, I definitely see more um, see that more the way that you did initially, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's something that. You know, in the first few episodes, I was like, well, I'm not sure sympathetic is really the way I refer to him. But it's like, yeah, I I do think now there is a little bit more of that, like for me anyway. Right. Um, Right. And but again, like these are people who want to do evil, evil things. Yep. So. So, yeah, I mean, and like to me, like that's how to write. A great villain mm-hmm. like there's there's different ways to write great villains right like you can write the joker and it's like yeah that that dude just doesn't have this kind of backstory sometimes he does right but usually doesn't right and like it's not necessary it doesn't have to be every villain right but this is a great way to write uh several right. villains in fact yeah i think the joker becomes much scarier in a world where most villains do have a relatable backstory you exactly know, like, i don't think the joker is as effective in most other rogue galleries except for the fact that almost all of the batman rogue gallery when the stories are told well have really legitimate understandable backstories and yeah. so heath ledger just making up or you know maybe there's some truth in some of them or none of them we have no idea is just so powerful for sure Last thing I wanted to say on the serial part, um, first of all, it's very much echoing what you're saying. And especially here, I think that we see like – because there's kind of like 
you know, a, a topic that often gets discussed is about like, you know, okay, well, if you are this sort of like great figure who's doing these great things for like people, you know, for hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of people, but you're kind of terrible to like the individual people around you, like, you know, is that justified or not? And like, you know, again, that so many of like the great heroes of history, some of them actually like terrible people, but some of them people I think like many people still very much look up to and respect, you know, were like terrible to their spouses or their girlfriends or like, you know, their kids or, you know, something like that. And with Ciro that we get both, you know, because we do get that kind of like, yes, we know he is still very much part of wanting to be the empire. And he has this like stalking moment yeah. with with Dedra that I know a lot of a lot of people felt like that not not. The word triggered gets thrown around a lot, and I, I want to be much more specific about that word, but had a moments of like, oh, God, I have had that, and it was a very awful experience and sometimes very much a traumatic experience, and so I immediately feel sympathy with – I immediately can relate to what Dedra's mm, going right. to, through, you know, and that's one more level because like what he does there is just so over the line. But it also brings me back to something that Danielle in the Star Wars said a couple episodes ago where she was saying all this is that and I think she was pretty clear that she wasn't saying that like everyone like Cyril is going to go down that path, but that he's at a point where he's very recruitable to that kind of path, you know, and like in his case, it is just all on his own. But like Cyril's the kind of guy who I could easily imagine him, him like finding his way to, you know, incel and like hard right conspiracy theory websites and it does not mean that all people who've gone through the stuff he does will do that, but it's also like that's why it's so important to intervene early and to help find people early and, and help them because yeah, it, it it does not at all surprise me. Like it surprised me, like you said, that like we're seeing it so quickly. But like if you show me what you showed about Cyril and then he turns into this person, it, it, it makes sense, and I think that's something that a lot of people need to better understand, is that, like, yeah, that that's what can turn into this. Yeah, I mean, so a few things. One, I, I, I've i got some issues with, like, the, the word and and idea incel, but, like, we don't have to get into that. But mm-hmm. um, I, I think, yeah. Just to be clear, it's a word that was coined by that community themselves. It, it, it is now often used as an insult to people who are not actually officially part of the community, but it was originally used by people like as a self-description. No, I, I understand. And, and so I think the fact that it is now used as an insult to people who weren't initially self-describing that way, I think is a – I don't know. Uh, I I don't like it. That's fair. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just leave it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think – like. You know, we're talking about like Cyril being radicalized, but like also he was already, you know, a corporate security like, you know, th- I don't think yeah. like this corporation functioning under the empire was like doing good stuff in a good way. You know, like yeah. they already were, you know, um, fairly f- fascistic, I think. And so mm-hmm. it, I, I think it's more like um, Cyril being like further radicalized right going going further down a path that he he already had both feet on you know um yeah but kind of got like bounced off of and then then doubled down you know and um i also think that the you know i i I don't feel that dedra felt threatened when cyril grabbed her like um Mm -hmm. because just like i just i i don't 
believe that with her. It's possible. It's certainly possible, you know. Right. Um, but I do think in the same way that, you know, the, the work dynamic functions, I do think this does um, – this is relatable, right? Um, yeah. And, and so, like, people's reaction to it isn't – uh, isn't unreasonable. And I, I think there is an element of like trying to show what she's going through and have people relate to that while also showing what she's doing. And it's like, you know, I don't know, just like the extent to which you can be a villain and a victim at the same time is like, um, yeah. it's, I mean, that that's kind of the definition of the show. In some right. Way. Exactly. I mean, or, like, you can be a hero and a villain at the same time, too, right? Like, we're, yeah. we were talking – you were talking about, like, we don't – there's, like, a lot of things we don't know about some of the characters or, you know, like, just doubling back to Olaf, like, I feel for him, right? I, I feel mm-hmm. sympathy and empathy and, like, like, dude had 41 shifts left, you know, and then he was supposed yeah. to be free, and then he has a stroke because they have him working, doing things that he shouldn't be doing, right? Um, not that anybody should be, but, like, there's a point at which it's like, okay, physically, like, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be pulling, you know, 712s a week, right? Yeah. Um, like, nobody should, but it's going to be worse for, for people who are... C- Cassian's body is much better suited for that work than... than right, yeah. exactly. And But, like, we don't know whether Olaf was, like caught for like robbing cereal for like stealing cereal or is like a cereal rapist or like yeah. just was in the wrong place at the wrong time like Cassian was who by the way actually is technically a serial murderer at this point right even though <laughs> yes, also that's true. Not, he got like grabbed for jaywalking basically you know like mm-hmm. and and so like for Olaf like I feel like we can feel sympathy for him without knowing why he's there, right? Maybe he's right. there unjustly. Maybe I mean I don't think that's a place anybody should be no matter what they've done, but like, you know, there are people who've done things that it's like, you know, as much as I am a, a prison abolitionist, like I don't know what to do with people who, you know, continually assault people or kill people. Like I I don't know. I I don't have that figured out. And like I do think finding a way to separate them from people who they might kill or or assault is like is Mm -hmm. good right but um i I think that's exactly and i think that's what makes it so powerful is because you're right and i I think for a lot of people they can easily say like yes the prison system is bad but then when it's like this specific person they're like no that's terrible like i know a lot of people who are very against the death penalty who are so mad that the guy who shot people in a, a clearly racist attack on a black church in south mm. carolina is not getting the death penalty and i think that's part of it's again it's the same thing it's the if you tell me here's a person who did terrible things then yes there's a part of me that's going to be like okay well you know if he gets bad things happen to him i'm not going to cry about it but then when we see the bad things happening to a prisoner and we don't know that backstory we have a very different reaction and i think intellectually i think that no matter how awful Olaf's crimes were still no person should be treated the way he's being treated that's what I want to intellectually think. 
But I also know that, like, you know, if, if you told me about the horrible things that Derek Chauvin was going through right now in jail, he's the cop who killed George Floyd here in Minnesota and was so unrepentant about it. Like, I'm not going to, like, cry a river over it. But I don't think the part of me that, like, wants to hear about him suffering in jail is good. And I certainly don't think it should be the basis of a criminal justice system. And and so, yeah, I, I think it's, again— this show is making me not only love the Star Wars story so much, but it's make, it is challenging me on so many of the things that I think about our own world in ways that I just are. Again, I don't want you want to keep blindly praising the show, but I think it's one more way that they're that they're they're taking such an interesting question and turning it on its head. Because you're right, we we don't know, and and the way it's portrayed feels like a a Jean Valjean situation. He stole a loaf of bread, but you're right. He could have been murdering young girls and doing terrible things, you know, he, or young people of any gender. Or, or old people. Or just killed his or, wife or killed his yeah. husband. Or old people, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is. Um, like, it, to be clear there, I'm not saying that those crimes are worse. I'm saying that those crimes are ones that we feel to be worse. Those are ones that generally elicit more of an emotional response from people. Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> I'll, I'll put it in my droidiest way possible. <laughs> there you go. So we're an hour in. We've got at least one major storyline that we want to talk about. And no, we haven't talked about Cassian Andor in the slightest this episode, um, except in terms of like how he relates to other people. I think and he had a very small role in this episode, I think. Um, but let's talk about him a little bit. He is our main character. And I'll start by just telling you a quick thing that um, Danielle, written in the Star Wars on TikTok and Twitter, pointed out, which is that, you know, one of the most emotionally powerful moments in Rogue One is when they've gotten the signal out and he turns to Jin and says, do you think anyone's listening? And and just again, Diego Luna being such a good actor, you can hear like the kind of the, the hope, but also the like cynical brokenness in him that he's he's used to the idea that no one's going to listen. And so seeing him talk to Kino in the prison and saying, like, they don't care about us. No one's listening. It's just another one of those very subtle, like, maybe it's a coincidence, but I really don't think it is. It's just such a good way of, of helping us better understand his character in a way that lines up so well with who he becomes in Rogue One. Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like they've done really well with these kind of references uh-huh. to things that haven't like you know like Nemec saying climb like right if that's something you remember and you make the connection it's very cool if it's not it's it's still totally functional as a line of dialogue yeah. you know it doesn't feel forced it doesn't feel like they put it in just to be the easter egg right exactly like th- this whole episode was about nobody's listening and and like nobody Nobody knows what what other people are going through because they because they're active. They have active disinterest. Mm. Right. It's like it's it's different from just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't care. It's like, no, I I don't want to know. You know, let let me let me think about something else. And, um, you know, I mean, that's something I I struggle with myself. Like, I, I feel like I can only pay attention to events in in our world for periods at a time. Yeah. And then if I constantly thought about all the suffering of other humans on this planet, let alone, you know, non-human animals, like I would just constantly be sad and then angry. Just and like there's always a certain amount of that on some level below the surface, you know, but like I just can't always think about it. 
or like I would I would get nothing done. Going back to a conversation we're having at the beginning of this episode, you just said something that really kind of made something click for me, which is about how the episode's about how nobody is listening. And on the one hand, like I think as viewers, we talked about how it was really powerful and I think made it a lot less unpleasant that we didn't have to hear what Bix was hearing. But once yeah. you think about the fact that the whole episode is about no one's listening, what oh, that wow. also means is that the literal last cries of a genocided people who, as you said, it doesn't seem like the Empire has done too many bad things. So clearly no one knows these people were genocided. That's been what their last cries have been weaponized by the people who yeah. did it. And even we don't get to hear it. Like, yeah. Oh, God, it's so good. It's so, wow. so much yeah. symbolism. Yeah. And, like, I think the point, though, is that, like, the Empire has genocided a lot of people or dis- mm-hmm. displaced a lot of, you know, civilizations like like the Dani, right, on Aldani. And um, and before them, the Republic has done this. Yeah. Right. To the Canari or maybe they're the, called the Kenar and the Canari is the, the planet. Um, but, yeah, like this has been going on for a long time and, like nobody's listening you know mon mothma is talking about it in the senate and nobody's listening oh yeah i forgot that scene was also it's the same thing if she's trying to make the speech and it it reminds me of how many times i've seen speeches like bernie or aoc or others giving these impassioned speeches to empty empty congress chambers right exactly and you know the idea of like what can you do to tell people what's going on if nobody's listening yeah and for, in, in terms of Andor, like, in terms of Cassian, like, this episode, to me, this episode started off, um, like, once we got once we got back to the, the prison, it started off feeling different than the last episode mm-hmm. because it was clear he had a plan. Yeah. Right? He was like, I'm getting out of here. And even though there wasn't much progress made, I mean, there was at, at the end of it, right? right? I mean, they... In terms of recruiting, they got the most powerful dude in their little area on board. But, like, this, like, the wheels are always spinning, right? Like, this is, to me, this is who Andor is. Yeah. Is he's someone who's always, you know, we saw in the first few episodes, he's, like, trying to, like, spin plates, right? He's like, oh, I'll pay you back. Hold on. I got to borrow this money from this other dude to bring it over to you. And then, like, I'm going to go steal this thing and I'll come back. And after I sell it, then I'll give this money and then that'll pay off these people. And, like, here he is in the prison and he's already doing that. Yeah. You know, he's, like, the first the first few shifts or whatever, the first episode we saw him there, he was just, like, like dazed, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but then once he was able to get his bearings, like he's always trying to come up with a plan. Yeah. And, um, I, I love that as like the, that's kind of like, to me, that's sort of like the essence or, or one aspect of the essence of his character. Um, and so like, he doesn't necessarily have to be doing a whole lot for us to to understand, you know, that that's, that's what he's doing. Well, especially because as you said, he had a plan. I'm fairly certain his plan did not involve an entire floor getting executed and one of the people on their team dying of a stroke in a way that made his death seem really horrible to this guy he wanted to recruit. But I think that right. – like I don't mean this in a bad way, the way the word is often used. I think Andor is an incredible opportunist. He's very good at like, – yes. and then maybe his plan was like – 
this prison is going to something horrible enough is going to happen to help people see how bad it is. And I will be ready to take advantage of that when it does. And like that's that's just a brilliant kind of planning. Yeah, um, he's so like observational. Yeah, you know, um, and it, it's interesting because um, I think let's see, Toby Haynes, who um, who directed th- these three episodes as well as the the first three episodes of the series, mm-hmm. um, directed one of one of my favorite episodes of Sherlock, the TV series, which is of course all about observing, right? Right. Um, the third episode of season. Uh, to the Reichenbach fall mm. um, with the whole Moriarty thing and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, it, like, I feel like, you know, like Andor doesn't say that much. Right. But like Diego Luna says a lot with his eyes and how he how he reacts to things and sometimes reacts to them by like not reacting to them in ways that other people are necessarily going to notice. Yep. But like, I feel like we can see what's going on. Right. Like, like he's very kind of closed and like plays things close to the vest for the most part. Mm-hmm. But then once he sees an angle, he goes for it. Um, and he, he's like, he's not afraid to speak up, but I feel like he only says something when he feels like it's going to have an effect. Yeah. You know, um, like he wouldn't say all these things, you know, um, you know, how many guards are there on each level if he didn't think he was maybe going to get an answer. Right. I mean, he keeps pestering him. He's like, he's trying to get a reaction. He's trying to, to, um, gets um uh, what's his face on his side mm-hmm. um and it's you know it it's just like yeah i i feel like we have a very clear idea of who this is and what he's trying to do without him always necessarily having to do a whole lot yeah i think it's very true uh, I don't want this episode to go on forever, though we could do, like, a, a, a series of podcasts on just this one episode and certainly this entire show. So let's talk about the one big plot uh, story that we haven't gotten into yet that you started to mention, which is Mon Mothma and, like, all the things going on with her and Vel and her husband and all that. Um, what, what are kind of some of your thoughts on, like, what we learned? You are starting to go into it before and said, let's put a pin on it. So let's take out that pin and uh, go into it deeper. Right. Um, and Kino was the name that I couldn't That's come right. up with. That's so, right. um, yeah, so, so Vel shows up and turns out to be Mon's cousin, which is the sort of thing that if it were totally random, I think would feel like a little bit weird. Like the universe right? is too small kind of a moment that a lot of shows give you. Exactly. Exactly. But it's, it's also revealed that, um, you know, Vel met, uh, or, or you know, Vel knows Luthen, right? Right. Because her and Mon are, are cousins, and so they all know each other, right? Um, and so that's kind of how Vel ended up getting, you know, her assignment, basically, where, you know, Mon's like, what does he have you doing? She's like, what does who have me doing? Right. Who are you talking about? <laughs> he doesn't exist. We don't talk about him, yeah. right? Um, but, yeah, her being, um, you know, being the cousin felt like a logical connection. It didn't feel like – it wasn't coincidence, right? right? There's there's an explanation. Um and, you know, there was some foreshadowing of that when um, Cinta uh, talked about her being like, you know, like a disillusioned rich girl, basically. Yeah. Right. Um, and when, you know, when the, so in terms of the like overt sexism that we see now mm-hmm. um, and heteronormativity, yep. <laughs> uh, we see <laughs> um, 
you know, she gives this this dress, which seems like it just seems like a nice dress to me, to um, Mon's daughter. And and Mon is like, oh, we'll see what your father has to say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the daughter is like, oh, dad lets me do whatever I want. Right. And um, and so, like, I don't know, the sort of like, oh, that is that dress like too short or too adult or whatever to you is like, it, it's interesting how like Mon Mothma's maybe internalized some of this. Um, you know, what, what I would say does, does seem like misogyny to me, you know, or sexism at least. Um, and, but also in a way that she's controlling her daughter and not letting her do what she wants. Mm -hmm. She's not giving her daughter freedom and her daughter's like, oh, but dad, Perrin will give me freedom, (laughs) even though he's on the side, he's aligned with, you know, or seems more aligned with this, like oppressive regime See, right this is so fascinating because i had the exact opposite reading of the scene and i think hmm. both are true and both show sexism which is that what i took okay, it, it is that often in parental situations like one of the things that i often hear in terms of people talking about like the way parental roles are divided up and the sexism involved is that dad gets to be like let's go have let's go have ice cream and mom is like you have to eat your green vegetables you know, and that's so mom. Right. And so to me, that's what I heard when it's like the dad lets me do anything. It's these sort of like, yeah, dad gets to be fun and permissive and thus get to be the like the, the one the kid seems to like more because dad knows mom is going to do the discipline. You know, mom is going to be the one to say like and absolutely. I think peril would be the one to kind of be like. Yeah, you know, whatever. I I know Mon won't actually let you wear that, or Mon won't actually let you stay out to four in the morning. So why would I bother being the being the bad parent? You know, when I can just be the one everyone mm. likes. And I and I don't think that negates any of the stuff you were saying either. I think both of them are so true. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I also appreciate what you pointed out about heteronormativity. And again, it's so subtle. Like we haven't. But to me, it's just like one more like. Vel's being Vel and Sintra being in a gay relationship is becoming a very important plot point, even though it's never been stated or in any really overt way. People who know what to look for would say it's very overt, but not in a like, you know, no one's protesting like, oh, my God, there's more gay people in Star Wars. Um, yeah. And so here's just one comment about like. Why have you know you need to be married, especially at your age, and and the look that Mon and Vel share because Mon clearly knows and doesn't make the dumb assumptions Perrin does. It was just mm-hmm. it, 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 that one quick moment said so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and then we had the like a touch of ageism thrown into right, like oh, especially at your age, right. and you know, um, but yeah, it, it's. And also, it's like it's unclear how much Perrin knows, right? Because yeah. it, it feels like the relationship between Vel and, and Cinta may be, um, you know, covert mm-hmm. since, you know, they're engaged in covert operations, right? Right. On, on the regular, or at least in, in that instance. I doubt Perrin has um, ever met Cintra. Right, yeah. Um, uh, although he does look like someone who was in Cintra. Um, oh, that's fair. <laughs> Cinta. Her name is Cinta. I keep Cinta, Cintra. yeah. Yeah. No, like really, was was this dude in The Witcher? He he looks he's got a Witcher face. He really does. I mean, <laughs> right? Well, the faces of Witchers are changing these days. But yes, I know what you mean. Oh, I don't know. Oh, is there? A new, I I don't know. Yeah. I don't keep up with these things. Um, but but yeah, it, it just <laughs> um, 
yeah, I, I don't I don't think he's met her, but I mean, I, I don't know how much he knows about Vel, like, you know, um, and, you know, her her uh, orientation. Right. Um, and whether he's actually being whether he's making wrong assumptions or whether he's being more um, overtly bigoted. Right. You know what I mean? Um Either either way, you know, not good. Yeah. But I mean, we already don't like him. Right. Uh, <laughs> he's he's so, yeah. And I think that kind of goes to what you're saying before. We don't need to know. You know, we don't need to know. Right. Like, I, my head canon would be that Mon has probably never met Cinta either. Like that. That's and sure. And it, but it, it just tells us so much. And it to me, the other part of all that that's so interesting was it, it's one more layer of how how different Mon and. Um, you know, Mon and Luthen obviously have different opinions. Like, you've got Mon, you've got Luthen, you've got Vel, and you've got Saul Guerrera. And all four of them have very different positions as to what is okay, what is not okay, what is advisable, what is not. Like, they all want to bring down the Empire, but they're at four fundamentally different places. Yeah, for sure. And, like, that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't necessarily all want the same thing after they bring down the Empire. Right. Right. And I mean, kind of sadly uh, to me, but like I I know other people will view it differently. Like we have an idea of what the new republic ends up looking like. And like it doesn't look too good. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still they're still murdering people. Right. I remember when I think was it episode five of Mandalorian where they just like casually dropped that in. Oh, yeah. That the people are being Um, executed. Yeah. And. You know, like, yeah, it doesn't seem like the New Republic suddenly is this, you know, enlightened, uh, wonderful state. Right. And and I think you can see how the, you know, the I want to call it the new order, the first order, the first know. order. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it feels like very much not the first order, though. Yeah. You know what I mean, like that feels like that name's a little, uh, you know, like you're like the eighth order. Right. I, I think the history is something more along the lines of like that. The first order of every society should be like respect for the power at the center of it. Like that's right, supposed to right, more be okay. about like a return to authoritarianism. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, like it seems like, you know, Regardless of what the New Republic actually ends up being, you know, we have people here who, like Mon Mothma, seems to think that she can still do good in the Senate. Yeah. You know? Um, and it's like she's... I, I do I do feel like she is mentally and emotionally sort of between. Yeah. Right? Between thinking, well, maybe we'll just do some things, but, like, maybe politics will work it out. You know? Maybe we will work it out through politics. Who knows? Like, I- um, let's keep trying. I think she said something to Luthen where, when he was being very cynical, where she was like, okay, yeah, maybe on some level I know that, like, the Senate isn't going to do anything, but at least me going through the motions helps protect my cover. But then you saw her in this episode, like, and you saw her give that speech, and, like, both during the speech and as she gets into the car afterwards, which, happily, we didn't see the car fully lift off, which that's a win. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah a win. It is so clear that she's disappointed. And, like... I get that right. feeling of like one part of you doesn't actually expect any good to happen, but another part of you is still very disappointed when it doesn't. Yeah, she's she still has hope there, right? In terms of you know, it's it's another five years before the Senate is going to be disbanded, and and I don't know exactly. I'm trying to remember whether there was a Rebels episode or something that makes it clear um, how long she's in the Senate, but like basically, 
you know, she's gonna she's gonna be there, part of this horrible power structure, trying to change it from the inside, but also understanding that like maybe probably that's not gonna work, and so she's gonna be part of this other thing too. Right. But it feels like she, it feels like her cover is is more than just her cover, right? You know, um, and it's like she's the extent to which it's purely a cover and the extent to which it's actually part of her ambition um, is unclear, you know, and I think it's unclear to her. Yeah. I think she's figuring that out. Right. And as, as the rebellion is, um, you know, boiling up as it's going from like a simmer to a, to a boil, I think, um, you know, she has to, that she has to confront that herself in mm-hmm. terms of what, what she thinks. And then meanwhile, saw, we only get a little bit of saw, right? We just had that one conversation. Um, we know where he ends up in rogue one. Um, and you know, we see him in some other media here and there as well. Um, but like he very clearly is like, yeah, we can't just, you know, just like turn things back and then everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Right. I mean, he thought things were horrible before, because things were horrible before, yeah. right? It doesn't necessarily mean his methods are, are better or the best way to go about things. But it, I think he does have, um, you know, you could say he's very cynical, uh, but or, or maybe he's an idealist. I'm not yeah. sure. I mean, I, I mean it, <laughs> uh, to me, two of the characters who are the most alike are Saw Gerrera and Chan Syndulla the father of Hera mm-hmm. because he's another one who I think is yeah, just like from rebels. He doesn't care about the galactic stuff. He's, and he's like, I, the separatists came to my planet. And so I want to kick out the separatists from my planet. And if you Republic people want to like help me do that, sure. But I don't want to be in your Republic. I don't want to be in your empire. Right. I don't want to be in your separatist Alliance. I just want my planet to like do its own thing. And, and yeah. It, it's, yeah, like it's a very, it, and that's fundamentally different from what Mon does because Mon, fundamentally still believes that a single galactic government is a good thing and that that you know and that she wants it to be more civil rightsy and maybe individual planets have a lot more rights and stuff like that but she still is committed to that idea and like it's one more way in which the prequels are so frustrating to me because i think the idea of should every planet in a galaxy all be part of one centralized government or should they all have much more like diverse, you know, power throughout them? That's a really interesting question with a lot of good sides to both questions. And we didn't get it in prequels, but we're starting to get more of it here. Yeah, for sure. And like in the prequels, we got a good reason. Right. We got a good argument for no, they should all be part of something to some extent. Right. Like, you know, Tatooine wasn't so much part of that, right? It was, and like they had slavery. Yeah. So like, you, sh- I mean, I think you should at least have some sort of a, you know, something that's like, yeah, you can't, you can't do Galactic that. Galactic anti-slavery okay. patrol. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like if, if you're going to do one thing. Yeah. Do that. And then like, also like, y- you can't have any of these local genocides either. Mm-hmm. We're. We're nixing that. And like th- those two things, yeah. if you're just like, okay, no slavery, no genocide, you could figure out your traffic laws yeah. <laughs> and whatever. I like it. <laughs> you know, um, th- there's a whole, at some point, I think I want to do a discussion about what comes after Return of the Jedi. Cause I think there are so many interesting questions about, cause in some ways, I don't, I, I think I'm not as convinced that the New Republic was actively bad as much as it just was chaotic. And there's so much good historical evidence about like, when like messy democracy takes over directly from authoritarianism is almost always a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. let's put that aside. 
because we're now in 90 minutes. Um, is yeah. there, I mean, I'll just co-sign like, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. Yeah. We know it. There's, there are at least some problems, but we don't know that yeah. much about it. Uh, is there any other last stuff you want to say, though, about uh, Mon and Val and Perrin or just any of the episode in general? Uh, uh, no, I think I think I'm good. It was great. Yeah. Uh, give me a prison break next time and, mm-hmm. and, and we're good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, once again, I, I, I hear what you're saying about because the episode was very saying something is slow or fast feels weird to me because i don't think it's bad if it's slow but you can't just be killing time you have to be using that time very efficiently like it's easy to catch my attention with a space battle or a lightsaber battle or like people being chased through a city and shooting at each other like but it's easy to lose it too yeah right i mean if a scene like that goes on too long something can feel slow because you're not interested right but like just the like for the first 30 seconds you're going to grab me even if it's not the best whereas like sure. and, or like if you have those every now and then the dialogue is going to get broken up a little i am all for all dialogue all the time but it has to really be top quality and i think that's what yeah kind of echoing what you're saying and maybe i'm misstating it but like of the idea of like if it what to me, this episode's like playing a violin. Like, no one has ever been decent at the violin. Because mm-hmm. anything less than very good sounds god-awful. And, and I think that's what this is. Like, I think trying to do an episode like this that is so just talky and character development and slow evolving of the plot, it has to be done very well or else it's going to really fold. And this was... Like to me, this is this is becoming the wire level TV of like I like you. I'm not always the fan of like let me choose the five best and not. But this mm-hmm. is I don't know how it's going to end, and we'll see. But I think going forward, this is going to be in my list of just like overall best TV shows. Yeah, uh, what I said exactly was if this episode weren't brilliant, it would have been unwatchable. Yeah, and. And it was brilliant. And I think the whole series so far has been brilliant. You know, I've had really only a few small quibbles, Mm -hmm. really. And um, some of those have kind of shaken out as as we've gotten more information. And, yeah, I don't know how it's going to end. But I, I do. I do just think it's I haven't seen something better. Yeah. You know, it's it's tied for for the best yeah. <laughs> so far with me, with like Daredevil, with like The Wire, mm-hmm. with, um, you know, The Last Airbender. Yeah. Like, you know, I could probably come up with some other ones that I feel are just like just pitch perfect versions of what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and then even then, always there's like, well, this well, season five of The Wire wasn't as good as season two or four. Yeah. Yeah, but like, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, within um, <laughs> within the highest levels of anything, there's always going to be some variation and and some preference. But For sure. yeah, um, all, all I can come back to is like, how many episodes are there in each episode of in each season of Andor? Yeah. Tw- Never more than 12. Never more than 12. <laughs> I want so Never many more. Never more than 12. All right. Well, <laughs> Paul, I know you are basically spending the month of November secluding yourself and focusing on some other stuff. So I think it's fair to say that Zen Madman won't be producing too much, but definitely I would suggest people kind of keep checking out Zen Madman. And I greatly appreciate that one of the few things you're kind of popping your head out for is to do these episodes. So thank you. Literally the only thing. <laughs> well, awesome. So fans, be... That is awesome. Thank you so much. Um, we have some great feedback that's been um, building mm. up. I keep thinking we'll keep the discussion to 
I keep thinking we'll keep the discussion to about an hour and then uh, do the feedback. We just don't have time for that. I'm not even going to put in a stinger today because it's gone so long. But I think we'll just do probably in early December just a full-on feedback episode. So please keep those things coming. Uh, in part, it's also because the, the three uh, great feedbacks I've gotten have all been like multiple paragraphs long. So send a two-sentence tweet and you're a lot more likely to be read up on the air sooner, but I will get to all those long emails because you've made great points and thank you so much for being fans and, and continue writing with those things. So thank you, Paul. Thank you all of you for listening. Uh, as always, we are the ethical Panda productions. So, TheEthicalPanda.com. You find all my podcasts, all the ways to contact us. Send us more feedback. Let us know what you think. Where are you on any of these characters? Let us know all that and more. And thank you so much for listening in. And remember, you're all fighting your own revolution. Or rebellion. Or whatever the hell the line is. But don't get the line wrong. Never more, <laughs> Never more than 12. Never more than 12.